We didn't really introduce ourselves, should we? Y'all could. They know who I am. They know me. Welcome to the Hashing It Out podcast, where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. Your hosts are Dr. Corey Petty, currently doing research at Status and waiting for other people to keep up. That requires no effort from us. Jesse Santiago, a former electrical engineer now working on decentralized storage at Status. No, no, no. I thought we were wrapping up. You're, you're going to end the recording? And with the deep voice and the deep questions, Dee Ferguson. Okay, strapping in. All right, let's go. And I'm the Hashing It Out showrunner, Christian Noguera. He's like, I, I don't know what to say to that. Thank you. The Hashing It Out blockchain infrastructure series continues with today's episode on the application layer with Patrick McCory. Welcome back to the Hashing It Out series where we talk about at least this series talks about all the infrastructure put into place in uh, blockchain networks and some of the trade-offs that we have to make when designing these systems and choosing this, these particular technologies to build the networks. Uh, as a short recap for you, Patrick, we have gone through uh, so far in the series, starting with computational infrastructure, moving into networking, which covered a lot of like peer-to-peer -peer networks and what it's like to introduce privacy and secrecy and a trade-off of gossiping, things like that. Mm -hmm. and, and then the consensus, because once you have a network, you need to agree on something. So we talked about distributed consensus and the kind of flavors of that. And then from there, we talked about data, which is what you're coming to consensus on. Um, and what is the purpose of data within a blockchain network? Now that we've gotten past that, we're talking about kind of execution environments and the application layer. So like, you have data, but like, what do you do with it? And what are different ways you can um, create execution environments to make distributed applications? So with that in mind, why don't you give uh, our audience a quick introduction as to who you are and, and what you do? Yeah. Um, so I guess like historically speaking, I was an academic. I did my PhD in Bitcoin and then Ethereum from 2013 to 2016. And I shortly made the transition in later years just to work on Ethereum. Uh, but I guess historically, I've always been interested in off-chain scalability. You know, the idea is, can we take, you know, transactions that should be on the main chain, but move it somewhere else? You know, so we move the computation away from the main chain. So I was excited for the Lightning Network back in 2016 for Bitcoin. I still am excited for that today. And I guess in later years, I was excited for Plasma and Rollups and sort of just really watched how they've evolved over the years. And I spent probably the past year trying to figure out an easy way to explain why rollups are useful. You know, really to explain to normies who aren't really into the, I don't know, the deep technical details of why this is a useful technology and why we should care about it. So that's sort of what I've been doing for the past year. Well, let's just assume that people understand um, where to go to get data and how to interpret it. How do you, how do you think about building an application on top of that? Um, I mean, I mean, this does get into a debate between Ethereum and Celestia in terms of, you know, building the app. So really what it comes down to is uh, you build an app and you deploy it to this network. You know, who's protecting, who's protecting it? You know, who's guaranteeing that the application is run as expected? You know, that uh, the program is faithfully executed and updates the database faithfully. On Ethereum, 
we're relying on the entire Ethereum network, you know, the validators, the peer-to-peer -peer network, because we all follow exactly the same rules. So we can guarantee that if you deploy an application to Ethereum, the network as a whole guarantees that it's executed correctly. Um, where if you start moving to you know, a strict data availability layer, sort of like Celestia, where all they care about is posting the data, then what you're really relying on is anyone who cares for your application. So let's say I've, I've, I've deployed my own sovereign rollup you know, on Celestia. Anyone who's running my client software and can interp interpret the data that's relevant for my application, they're the ones who's protecting it. And so it's very, it's a very different security model. One is the users of the system are protecting it or the entire network's protecting it. And that really comes down to, you know, the client software that's being run and the expectation of people to run that client software. So it comes down to trust and guaranteeing is faithfully executed. I don't know too much about Celestia, but I keep yeah. hearing more and more about that one. Um, so in, in this case, um, Celestia would be the ecosystem in which the users caring about the application ensure security versus Ethereum, it's the entire network. Exactly. So it's a bit like color coins back in the day. So color coin was a application built on top of Bitcoin that lived outside of the Bitcoin script. So the idea was that I could run, I could download the color coin application. I could then, then my color coin client would process the Bitcoin blockchain. It would find the data that's relevant. And then given that data, it would work out if I own any color coins, you know, it would check the validity of those transactions. But the important bit is Bitcoin wasn't checking the validity. It was just a bulletin board for the data. It was the color coin software that was really validating whether a color coin transaction was correct or not. And so there you're relying on the color coin users to check that's correct. And Celestia is a very similar model to that. They just got rid of Bitcoin scripting. They get rid of all the scripting for the native layer and just say, here's all the data. If you want, you know, if you want to use it on this. As a public hard to, hard to, hard to mess with database. Order exactly, as a, a public bulletin board even, as it poses all the data there, yeah. And then anyone, then you can decide how to interpret the data afterwards. So yeah, it's very much like color coin back in the day, but it does come down to your question. If I'm gonna, if you know, if I'm designing applications for a data layer, what do I have to think about? And ultimately, what you have to think about is how do you guarantee that's faithfully executed and who's protecting it? And it comes down to users or the actual network itself. And the network comes with a cost because it's expensive to do global consensus. And that's interesting because. The, I don't know, the theming of how to think about the future of this stuff keeps changing slightly because uh, it started out as this kind mm -hmm. of everyone runs all the software and has a local copy of it. Um, Ethereum kind of ran that concept into the ground by expanding so quickly and generalizing what you can do with the network and the network and everyone in the network doing everything. Um, but it also made it easier to reason about how to build applications on top of it. I build this application that leverages Ethereum network. The Ethereum network handles most of it, especially the trust part. All I'm doing mm -hmm. is making a, you know, ostensibly a front end that accesses a portion of the network. Yep. Um, and now we're moving back to this, this concept where like that trust isn't guaranteed as much and you need to contextualize the trust to the application. And it's not just a dumb front end because we can't scale that 
monolithic entity where I tr like all my trust is pushed into the computer to the network. Uh, and I'm trying to think about like how reasonable that is for regular people to navigate. Like when, the, when people get their application, they just want to use it. And now we've added additional responsibilities to them again of what am I using and how do I trust it? As opposed to it's the theory of network. I already have a general idea of how much I can trust it. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think the best way to answer that. So that's quite tricky because I would, I'm a, my philosophy is our users shouldn't have to care about the security of the system. As in, you know, they're non-tackies. They, they just want to, you know, lock their coins into a system. Or actually, they want to lock their Mooncat into a system and ban sell their Mooncat. You know, that's, that's sort of their goal. Uh, but what a user does care about, and I think this is very important, is sort of, you know, proof of solvency. I want to make sure if I'm using a system, well, they can actually get my Mooncat back out. Um, so I feel like at the B, so I think he really cares about this for developers and organizations. You know, if I'm an organization today or, or a venture-funded startup, and let's say I want to compete with Coinbase, you know, I'm not going to be able to compete with Coinbase's operational security to protect tens of billions of dollars. That's impossible for me to do. Well, maybe it's not impossible, but a huge mountain to climb. But if I could deploy software that automatically protects the funds for me, but I could still build that Coinbase-like experience, then that's what I'm going to do. Because then I don't have to take, I don't have to worry about protecting users' assets because the software takes care of that for me. And then you just get down the rabbit hole of, you know, how does it protect the, the users' assets and the funds locked into the system? And then that comes down to, do you want a side chain? Do you want a roll up? Do you want a, I don't know, a Cosmos chain? And there's lots of different ways to think about how, you know, the, the software stack that you would take to protect the user's funds. Interesting. I, I, I have a, I, I guess I, I subscribe to the philosophy where like I want to run everything and I want to understand how it works. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't consider myself a developer, but I also don't consider myself like a normal user. I kind of want to be able to say that I understand enough of what I'm running that I have control over my data. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't have to use, um, or I don't, I don't have to trust that the, the security of the network lies with some other entity and, Say moon math, you know. I don't know. We trust moon math all the time. I mean, I think that's a fine one to trust. Yeah. Them. Okay. Uh, no, but I think you had an you know interesting. I, mean. I think you made an interesting point there that you want control of your data. So, like, that's one I think I would ask is, uh, do you want control of your of data? I think it's not that you want control of your data. I think what you may care about is. Who ultimately controls your funds? Or I guess when you say data, I think of you have your private key, you can sign transactions, people can't steal your funds, but you still want to use you know, an external service. So Uniswap's nice because it lives on Ethereum. But let's say you want to use Coinbase, then you have to give up custody of your funds, and that's really annoying because it's this big black box that you can't see into. So I think what you probably want is just a way to audit a system before you use it. So you can have some confidence that your funds will be safe when you're interacting with it. Would that be a fair uh, classification of? I, I think I think a little bit like a few levels higher than that, but but okay. close. Yeah, like for instance, uh, we had um, 
we had uh Paul Lansky and Eduardo from Dapnode on. Yeah. So, you know, like the Dapnode Sterium model where, you know, they make it quite easy for users to run mm -hmm. your own node, something like that. That appeals to me. Um, yeah, I mean, that'd be really cool. Like, like that's why I'm a big fan of the rollups. So if you look at Arbitrum, for example, mm -hmm. you can download a replica node and you can check what their database looks like in real time. You know, uh, so it's a bit like, you know, when you use Arbitrum, it's a bit like Coinbase in a way. It's like you send a transaction, you get this instant confirmation that it's complete. And then it goes through the stages and gets processed. And on an app node, I, I don't know if they support replica nodes yet, but they will someday. And then you could actually, you know, check in real time that something like Arbitrum is, uh, you know, it's it's actually secure and safe and your assets are there and no one's hacked it yet. Um, so yeah, I'm very much in that philosophy. It'd be really nice to be able to check in real time if these off-chain systems are actually working as we expect. Yeah, that sounds like a good compromise, something like that. I think that's interesting to kind of dive into a little bit more here. Um, what are what are the guarantees we could expect a blockchain network to be giving when they're incorporated into an application? Like, why use a blockchain? And what should we expect the user to understand in the process of using using an application that leverages a blockchain? Yeah. Um... I think there's several ways to answer this. I'm just debating the best way the answer to begin with. Okay, let's start with the, the network one, like the fundamental one you were talking about earlier. So um, so we sort of give, like you give the example of Ethereum went down one extreme end of having too much programmability, and it's just really expensive for everyone to verify in real time, whereas Celestia went on the other end, which is this data. You know, there's no computation there, really. Well, maybe there will when they release, I don't know, but it's minimal computation. I think... An ideal blockchain for developers to build on would be uh, like in the middle. Like you want an expressive blockchain so you can write smart contracts that define the conditions to keep a system safe. You know, uh, so for example, uh, you know, I want to lock my funds into an off-chain system. I want to know the exact conditions in which they can be withdrawn. Uh, so what my ideal one would be a, a data layer with minimal computation or minimal, it's fully expressive, but the computation here is, is very minimal. In terms it's of just the enough associated guarantees you get from yes. that data. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, where most of the computation would help happen somewhere else, which would be nice. You know, it's uh, that's how you can scale these networks. I guess that's how we have scaled these networks. Um, and I'm trying to think of the, the other way. To, yeah. well, can you repeat your question again, just so I can uh, remind myself? Why use a blockchain? What guarantees oh, do you okay. expect users to have when leveraging an application that okay. uses awesome. a blockchain? No, that's awesome. Yeah. So basically, that really like so instead of you know why use a blockchain, what is a blockchain is probably the easiest way to answer this. So people like typically get confused when we talk about blockchains. A blockchain is just an auto. Like, I call it a cryptographic data trail. Auto what? Cryptographic data trail. You know, it's just an, a cryptographic audit trail. Audit trail. Or data okay. trail. Oh, audit, audit trail, trail, yeah. Oh, audit no. trail, yeah. It allows you to audit a database in real time. So the idea is that you're running an, you know, you're, you're a developer, you want to launch your service, you have to create a database. Now, most databases are private by default because that's just how we build stuff in Web2. I would use a blockchain because one, my database can be public. So anyone can read it. Anyone can get a copy of it. And two, the blockchain is just an audit trail that gives other people confidence. 
So I can download the blockchain. I can recompute the database that you have. And if I can check that my database is the same as your database, then I have confidence that is correct. So it really comes down to confidence and you know, tr like minimizing trust. Like I don't have to trust you necessarily because I know your database is correct. And that's because I can independently verify that is correct as well. So I think fundamentally it just comes down to, do you want your system to have an audit trail or not that anyone can verify is correct? And so in the case of FTX, that would have been really useful because we all could have checked in real time if their assets covered their liabilities. That would be a really useful feature to have. So that's one reason to use a blockchain. And then when you get to sort of like stuff like the Ethereum network and this autonomous network where you can deploy autonomous smart contracts, then I think what it really comes down to there is, you know, could you build an application that replaces an intermediary? So if you look at really popular applications on Ethereum, you know, we have, we have uh, exchanges, we have voting, we have auctions, um, and even token issuance, you know, there's ways to issue tokens. And what's nice for most of these applications is that we've replaced human operators with autonomous, you know, programmable smart contracts. You know, we can have auctions without any auctioneer because the auctioneer is the smart contract. We can have voting without, you know, Italian authority because the Italian authority is a smart contract. And we can have exchanges without you know, uh, I don't know what you call it, brokers without brokers because the smart contract is the broker. It's matching the buyer and the seller automatically. And so on the on the least extreme end, it's just you have an audit trail. One reason to use a blockchain and you know, more, more networks is that you can just replace intermediaries with code. And that's great because now there's no bottleneck because you're just dealing with code and not humans. I mean, no software skills, humans don't. So uh, it's a very good reason to use a blockchain. Yeah, there's an audit trail when you look at that layer two, there's also an audit trail of yep. those those contracts. So you can see how they're changed in real time to make sure that- Exactly, uh, yeah. In fact, even just in that debate is sort of, sorry, not that debate, but a lot of people are sort of upset at the L2s right now because a lot of the L2s have been described as vanity projects. They're more like these you know, trusted side chains because they're not fully implemented yet. But um, the reason why I'm a big fan of L2s and even something like Binance Smart Chain, which a lot of people also hit on, is because uh, like 99% of the time, the software is running to protect the system. Uh, you know, we can all, we can go on the Binance Smart Chain today, we can download the blockchain, and we can check that everything in that network was running well, that system was running correctly. But 1% of the time, you may need some human intervention in order to upgrade the software, update the contracts, or do something that's beneficial to the users. So I'm actually quite a fan of systems where 99% of the time it's software, 1% of the time there's some human involvement because, you know, they all still have training wheels on. So to me, that's even another reason why to use a blockchain. You know, 99% of the time the software is still in with the hard work and you don't have to. And it seems as though um, the mental model to think about these things has changed in that, like, using a blockchain is now... Like if you, when you had an application in like Bitcoin days and early Ethereum days, or even Ethereum a couple of years ago at the most, uh, it was like, I'm making an application that is built on top of X blockchain. And you leverage mm -hmm. the, you leverage that, that network to do everything. But now it seems as though applications are tr starting to have to make more decisions in how they leverage multiple layers of blockchains in order to get to the end user application. 
because you have the like L1, Ethereum L1 is now providing a data availability layer. This mm -hmm. is where the data lives and some rules around how that data is processed. But if you really want to do something at the mass scale, you need to like another blockchain basically leverages that to then yep. do add, to add more constraints and more rules and a different trust assumption that then gives the user some ability to do something. And so when you're building an application nowadays, you have to then think about like what you, what you just said, the base layer blockchain, which is just here's trusted ordered data or like auditable data. And from there, I need to go somewhere else to figure out what to do with that data and figure out the consequences of how that passes down whatever properties to my users. And that's a more complex thing for the development process. But at the end of the day, probably uh, ultimately the only way we actually scale the stuff out to serve humanity. Yeah, actually, maybe another way to summarize that is sort of there's three layers that are being built. One is data availability, which you've, you know, we spoke about at length, you know, the idea that you post the data somewhere and it eventually gets interpreted. You know, Ethereum is building that and other networks are building that. Then there's two more layers. One is the settlement layer was, you know, a good way to summarize is, summarize that is, you know, where are the assets? Mm -hmm. You know, who maintains the rack cores of the assets and ownership of those assets? And Ethereum is also doing that role. You know, a lot of people have their funds on Ethereum and we can verify, and, you know, if I want to transfer you money, we'll settle that on Ethereum. And then you have the execution layer, which is really should be doing most of the hard work. You know, given these assets, can we, you know, execute on them, do something interesting with them, then eventually settle back to something like Ethereum. And so as a developer, what I really have to care about is one, you know, what's the settlement layer? Where are the assets? You know, what assets can access my system? You know, if I build a Solana, for example, then all the Solana assets can access my system, but maybe the Ethereum assets is a bit more difficult. Um, and two, what execution layer do I use? You know, where am I going to deploy my smart contracts? And, you know, how expensive are those fees? And what is even the programming environment there? Because a lot of these layer twos have uh, experimental virtual machines. You know, they're just not, they're not, they're not exactly the EVM anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I think as a developer, that's what you're concerned with. You know, what assets can access my system? And two, what are the execution layers? Where do I deploy my smart contracts? And what users are on those layers as well? You know, do I deploy on a, I don't know, Maybe like Fio V1, just because that only has $8 locked into it. If I, lock, if I deploy there, then, you know, I'm not going to have any users. You know, not to say it's a bad system, but they moved on the V2 immediately. You know, so you have to really think about what execution there is and what, what users they have there. What are your thoughts on, I, mean, I, I have an idea on where you think this is going and why you spend your time doing what you do. But like, what are your thoughts on the the general consensus of people making those decisions? Is it? Ethereum and layer twos? Is it uh, a the, the, the kind of expansion of alternative layer ones and bridging across mm -hmm. those? Is it amalgamation of the two? What do you think? Um, I mean, I think it's a multi-chain world. I think uh, we already have several popular layer ones. You know, Polygon's a popular layer one that tries to tell people they're layer two. Uh, I mean, there'll be a layer two someday, but it's still very much a layer one right now. Um, you have Solana. I mean, Solana's going through some difficult times right now, but that is another layer one that has some popular usage. Um, I think what's really important is just the bridges. I think ultimately it'll be down to, you know, how do you get your assets from blockchain A to blockchain B? And what are the security guarantees you get there? You know, if I, if the only way I can get my assets from Ethereum to Solana 
or maybe Ethereum and Bitcoin, because that's Ren BTC. If I have to trust one Oracle to protect my funds, well, you know, that's not great for the users. Um, so I think it really comes down to how well can we build bridges between these systems? And ideally, especially with the rollups, well, maybe a good example of this is DYDX. So DYDX was on StarkNet, and now they're moving to Cosmos. They're going to use the Cosmos SDK for their new system. And I've not spoke to DYDX, nor have I spoke to StarkNet about it. But my, my suspicion is that they're moving the Cosmos because the StarkNet SDK wasn't ready yet. You know, they want to build their exchange. They want to work on their product. But the SDK just isn't there yet, where Cosmos SDK is probably quite mature. So even just because of the SDKs, I think we're going to be in this multi-chain world. You know, uh, if, if, if you deploy a new L1 or, and you, or you have a really good SDK, you're probably going to get people building there. As long as you have uh, good uh, bridges so you can make sure the assets can actually get over to that system. So I think what's the, the, actually the hardest problem are just the bridges. If there's good bridges, then we'll have a multi-chain world that's, that most people can use. So far, that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they keep getting hacked. And actually, you know, it's funny, funny of, like, uh, you know, back in 2017, 2018, uh, so right now all the bridges are getting hacked every month. You know, we've seen that with, uh, I don't know, Nomad was one of the biggest with $500 million lost. And that hack was really frustrating because it was a really basic Solidity bug. Um, but back in 2017, we had a similar experience. There used to be this website, and it's a really long URL, so I'll paraphrase it. You know, when was the last time an exchange got hacked and lost more than $100 million? And I have a slide, actually, from an old presentation that showed it was 37 days ago before an exchange got hacked. Then a new one got hacked that day. So from like 2014 to 2018, exchanges got hacked every two to three months. Um, I mean, there's a whole graveyard of exchanges. And exchanges are ostensibly the bridges of... Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly, the bridges, yeah, exactly. Theirs is a single authority bridge. There's still a bridge there controlled by one party. You know, that was just, you know, a very basic bridge that kept getting hacked. Where now people are building more sophisticated bridges, and now we're very much in that they're going to get hacked every two months. But just like exchanges, you would like to think over time they will stop getting hacked as much because we'll get one or two good designs that actually work. Because now exchanges don't get hacked as often. I mean, FTX wasn't a hack. That was a... Fraud. Misappropriation of customer funds. Yeah. That's just fraud. That's fraud. Yeah, basically. It's just embezzlement. But, um, but most, like, a lot of exchanges don't necessarily get hacked anymore. And that's because they've realized, like, they've worked out how to secure the assets for you know 95% of the time. And so bridges will eventually go down that route. It's just right now, uh, yeah, they keep getting hacked. So I think that's actually the biggest problem is building good bridges. Yeah, I, I don't know anything about building bridges. I just keep seeing that they get keep getting hacked. And so I'm just like, why are they doing this over and over again? Yeah, I mean, maybe I could give some insight for the bridges. You know, over the years they've evolved, you know, the, like, if you think of like, there's like four different ways to describe it, you know, different type of bridges. One is single authority. That's like Coinbase, Bitstamp, Binance. One authority has the power to you know, withdraw assets from the bridge. So maybe another way to look at it is the bridge has all the assets. And the bridge wants to be convinced that the off-chain database is okay, it's well, it's safe, before it allows a user to withdraw their funds. And so in a single authority model, one authority can tell the bridge that the off-chain database is okay. So, you know, 
uh, Coibase will attest to the fact you can give all this 1,000 ETH because our liability database is okay. We know all, we know all of our liabilities. We can, you know, the outsides cover the liabilities. You can take the funds. Then over the years, we tried to, you know, reduce that trust. So like a multi-authority bridge, that's sort of like a multi-sync. If five out of nine validators say that the that off-chain database is okay, and Alice can take her 1,000 ETH from the system, then the bridge will accept that and run with it. Um, but the issue there is, you know, you're going from one authority to multiple authorities, but it's still possible for multiple authorities to get hacked. So that was the, I'm trying to remember the name of that bridge now, the Ronon bridge. Yeah. You know, that was a multi-authority bridge. Five or seven people, five or seven signatures were the same person. I was was just about to mention that. It was a multi-authority bridge, but really it was just a single authority bridge. Um, Because one person controlled like four validators then had pseudo access to the other one. So um, yeah, so sort of like masquerade security, but, but, you know, but conceptually speaking, it should be harder for multiple authorities to get hacked. And so the real difference with the rollups is that in the previous bridges, you're always trusting the word of a set of authorities. You know, maybe less than 10 people control the bridge. On a rollup, I would call this a validating bridge because the bridge will independently check what they're saying is correct. So you have to convince the bridge with real evidence that this off-chain database is okay before I'll process the funds. So you're really moving from a model where whatever I say is true to, you know, this is what I've said and here's evidence for why it's true. And so now we're just trying to build these better bridges that include evidence of whether the database is okay before the funds get withdrawn. So that's sort of like, you know, the evolution of bridges. This may be a, t- a lot to take in, I don't know, but... Um, yeah, we're, now we're but this- now on the conversation in general on this in a series where... Uh, it spreads out pretty substantially. Yeah, you know, coming from computational hardware to at like the ridiculously broad sea of applications you can build on top of these things. Like it's it's a lot, but the goal is to try and give people a mental model of like how to think about blockchains these days. And if you're going to build something, why would you do it? And what are the trade offs associated with it? And and then look at the kind of the future of where are these networks going and is there a semblance of like i can contribute to them as an individual as opposed to i rely on other people with more resources to contribute to them because like in that early days of bitcoin one cpu one vote i run these things on my laptop and the goal was you have real decentralized access and contribution to these networks and we've moved Mm -hmm. very far from that and it seems as though we're maybe trying to reintroduce in- inklings of that. But if you look at most of the players that are the core of the security guarantees of the network, it's a small amount of people with limited resources. And yeah, we're, but we even, move, we're, yeah, I think even, we're trying to move back to that through you know, zero knowledge tech, like zero knowledge. Yep. And yeah, interesting ways of contributing at different layers of the stack. Yeah, I mean, there's actually, just speaking of decentralization, there's a really nice, uh, uh, I think there's like three parts to that, which is sort of, you know, it will hopefully help, once I explain, maybe it'll help explain why it's relevant. Um, So I think for decentralization, I normally think about it in three parts. One, you know, who can maintain the system? Who can order transactions? Who can propose blocks? Uh, The second one is who can verify that it's correct? You know, so 
if there's someone out there proposing transactions and blocks, what are the set of people who can verify that's correct and accept it? And then the third one is affordability. Who can afford to use this network? You know, if it costs $400 for a transaction, which maybe you guys have done, I've certainly done that. You know, well, it becomes a whale chain in that sense. You know, so it's not really decentralized because you need $400 before you can transact. And so we've always had this like trade-off between affordability and who can verify the, the network's correct. You know, because if you make, if, you know, it's sort of like the old Bitcoin argument. If you have big blocks, then the transaction, there can be lots of transactions, but then not as many people can verify they're correct or not. Um, and that's where I think over the years, we've sort of managed to get out of that rut. We've managed to find a third way to get away from that. You know, the idea that the settlement layer is minimal and everyone can verify that their assets are safe, that sort of gets around that. Then pushing the execution elsewhere and then using fancy moon math like zero knowledge proofs, you can sort of have one entity that does all of the hard work. And then as users, we can have these tiny proofs to check that they're correct. So you can really maximize, you know, your population of users. You can verify the system's running correctly. Um, participating in the network and producing, you know, blocks and transactions, that probably will become more centralized over time just because if you're processing so many transactions, you need a lot of resources for that. At the same time, we're uh, increasing the height of the stack pretty substantially, meaning... There's a lot more things that people can do and be incentivized to do to uh, establish a baseline health of the entire network and not just this base layer. And I think that differentiation mm -hmm. of roles is what you'll start to see where, yep. oh, I can't be a base layer validator because it's too expensive to run of access to that hardware bandwidth or uptime, but I can provide this caching service or something else in the middle to make sure people have a better user experience or can interpret that data well. And we can build decentralized systems for those things too. And that's where yeah. you increase the overall level of participation while not necessarily like maintaining incredibly permissionless, inclusive access at the very base layer that is where like the majority of the security lies. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot more. If you just think of the Bitcoin days, there were block proposers and there were verifiers or people running nodes. And that's what we had in Bitcoin for a very long time where in Ethereum and the rule-ups, there's so many different rules involved. You know, you could be an MEV bot that's, you know, building the blocks that are sent to the Flashbot relay that then gets sent to the validators. You know, so anyone can actually compete and try to extract them with MEV. That's a very dedicated role. You could be a validator on the proof-of-stake chain where you're proposing transactions and, you know, helping the network converge on a single, on a single blockchain. You could run a rollup. You could be a sequencer running your own Coinbase-like experience, but then you're relying on a different set of people to protect the backend. There's a lot more dedicated roles for people to join, and they all have different resource requirements. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of roles that people can participate in now. It's very much a diverse world than it used to be. Hashing It Out is working with Infinity Keys to let you claim a free listener NFT for this episode. You can find the Hashing It Out challenge on the infinitykeys.io puzzle page or use the link in the show notes. Enter this week's passcode POTATO, that's P-O-T-A-T-O. Then claim the NFT on Ethereum, Avalanche, Polygon, or Optimism. I've always wondered if the reason why um, Amazon or Google like never 
announced, you know, officially participating in, in like the ecosystem is because everybody's running their VPS through them. And so they, they already know, like, they're probably going to be the backbone over time. Well, you know what? Actually, Google have now. Google yeah. are very, very pro Ethereum at the moment. Actually, yeah. I think they're even running the Solana, Solana now. I think. Solana, yeah, yeah, yeah I think yeah. so. Your choice, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but that's actually great, isn't it? We're in a bear market with everything exploding around us. Then Google comes in and they're like, oh yeah, we're going to start supporting these networks. You know, we have our own dedicated blockchain team now. Yeah. So it's very bullish for that. It's. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, it, 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 yeah. Sorry, bad. Yeah, I was just gonna say this is like it goes it goes uh, opposite to the idea that you know average joe can just pop open his laptop and participate now you know everybody's running like a lot of the tutorials i find for running nodes on any different l1 are through you know like a digital ocean or some sort of you know vps provider versus you know hey do you have a, an old laptop sitting in the corner you know pop that open and so it's it's for me it's a little bit sad um i wish that you know older hardware could be repurposed to be useful to the network, but it I can think be. that it's mm -hmm. just, we don't prioritize it because the standard is cloud. Yeah. Like you having something that runs smoothly, like first of all, like the networks that operate today, need a certain level of uptime, especially when you move to proof of stake, uh, but most version, most flavors of proof of stake, you, your, your computer needs to be on, have good access to the internet, reasonable bandwidth and can't like, in order to for the network to run properly, the majority of the devices doing this need to be there and stay there during the lifetime of them participating. They can't have power outages. They can't have you know that bad bandwidth because you know their friends start streaming on the same network. Like none of that stuff can happen in order for the entire network to be to run properly. And yeah. that's not reasonable for a lot of people. Uh, and so you have to draw the line somewhere. And that's kind of the hallmark of what cloud providers do is they say like. Here's what looks like a machine. There's a bunch of stuff going on in the background that makes it run all the time that we handle. We off, you offload that work to them. And the convenience is very comfortable for people if they say like, okay, that's fine. It's worth it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But for you and I, we like running I'm, stuff. I have a shitload of computers yeah. underneath my house. So that's, that's where they're going to stay. Like it's Yeah. I mean, so like the Ethereum roadmap does like long-term roadmap should be better for home, like solo validators and stickers. So they have this... Uh, concept called weak, weak statelessness. What that means basically is that the validators don't have to keep around a copy of the database. All validators have to do is collect transactions, put them in a block, and then send off the block. So the actual database itself, and even, I guess, to some extent, validating the transactions no longer have to be the responsibility. You know, they're literally just packing blocks and that's it. That's kind of the nice part um, about that differentiation of roles in the network is people can contribute in different ways, depending upon what resources yeah. are required to do it. Exactly. Yeah. So that would assume that the database is kept out with someone else, maybe someone like Infure or some other new provider. And so what someone like Infure would do is they would collect the transactions, provide something called an access list. And I guess I'm, I'm, I know Merkle trees approve that this transaction is valid and here's all the items in the database that is accessing then that would be passed off to the validators. So as soon as there's someone else doing all of the hard work, then the, the validators can pick it up and then run with it. And so, yeah, there's different rules there. You know, someone, they're basically, you know, validators will pack blocks, 
there'll be some node providers who do all the hard work to guarantee that uh, the validators get nice, clean information to pack their blocks with. It's like a digital cast system. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in a way, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what a great way to wrap up an episode. Uh, is there anything that you wish we would have asked you or you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to? Um, I think the only thing that might be interesting just for this discussion is sort of why is something like, why is a service like Infury useful or like a new provider useful? Um, I thought about that a lot myself when I, when I first went to Infura. I was like, why is this useful for? Why, why are people using Infura? Um, I mean, we all laugh at that, don't we? It's like, the, like one of the master notes. Although people don't get that reference anymore, so it kills me. Um, <laughs> you know, it's... Um, but it's, I, 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 I rationalize it as... It's basically a load balancing service. You know, people... Like, if you're a DAP and you have, I don't know, 100 requests per second from your users... Then actually setting up that infrastructure to pain in the ass. You need your own dedicated DevOps team to deal with that. So services like Infure and other new providers, like I know Block Demon, Chain Stack, whatever, you know, uh, they're just really useful loot, like loop balancing services, and that's it. Especially using JSON RPC. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for the JSON RPC. So maybe that's the only thing. Just because it's relevant to the discussion, sort of. Uh, on top of that, there. I mean, what's nice about like for the for the while that was a centralizing effect, and we had to trust Infure in order to make sure that mm -hmm. like to, to assume that that data was appropriate like they didn't just alter they queried the blockchain and said no i don't like that i'm gonna give them something else so there's no there'd be no way for us to know unless we ran our own which defeats the purpose of using infura in the first place basically having a light client experience uh, yep. but now with the move the merge and the move to pos we're able to uh basically subscribe to an alternative uh feed that allows you to quickly and cheaply verify any third-party source like infura to show that what they give you is correct and you can trust it. So yep. like, um, it, actually, it what really people, adds a tremendous amount of value to load balancing services like Infura. Yeah, and what people also do is they send up the multiple providers and they check the response from each provider. I call it like the cocktail approach. You know, you have three different subscriptions, you send the same request to all of them, and then you check if it's correct or not. And I know like there's several companies doing that now. This yeah, but it's, nice. it's inefficient compared to how we can do it now. That was at a, that Oh, was no, a, definitely, yes, yeah. it's inefficient, yeah. I mean, even light client support would be quite nice. You know, being able to prove to you that this is a valid response from the database. That'd be nice. Great. Uh, definitely. Thanks for coming on the show. And where can people reach out, learn more about you and what you do in Infura? Yeah. Oh, you mean where? I don't know. Yeah. It's just Twitter, I guess. <laughs> just, <laughs> stone, sorry, it's just, it's just I don't know, Stone Cold Pot Zero on Twitter. I guess that's about it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's easier. Part two of the application layer coming soon. It's very top notch.